us a lot of information on uh, about heaven, about what heaven, I think it gives us an idea of what heaven looks like, but it doesn't give us really an idea of what we're going to be doing in heaven uh, and things along that line. I know my granddad, my, my dad's father, uh, loved, he had a beautiful garden and loved working in his garden, and he always said and hoped, he said, I just hope there's a garden in heaven, because I know if there's a garden in heaven, I'll be happy. He wanted to be buried with a hoe. I don't remember, that was too long ago. I don't remember if they put one in the casket or not, uh, but uh, that was a tool that he had often carried around with him. I've also heard a lot of people say over the years uh, something to this effect, I really love to sing, but I just don't know if I can stand it for you know, ages and ages and ages on end. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, hopeful that maybe heaven is something more than just singing. I, I have an idea of what heaven is like. I have an idea of, uh, uh, of what, what, what it's going to be like up there, what our relationships are going to be like. And uh, several years ago, well, maybe not that long, it's four or five, uh, several people recommended a book to me uh, that book was written by Randy Alcorn. The title of that book was Heaven. Uh, my mom was one that just said, Brian, you've got to read this book. So hesitantly, I bought it. Usually I say hesitant because I just don't like to read. So therefore, that's why sometimes I really don't uh, want to buy books. Uh, but I bought it and it sat there and it sat there and it sat there. And I was looking at uh, curriculum classes and what not to do on Wednesday night. And I thought, Oh, why not? We'll just do this book of, on heaven by Randy Alcorn. Uh, and so I put uh, uh, some lessons together. We did six weeks, and I was never so glad for that six weeks to be over. I took that book and I threw it in the trash and never wanted to see it again. And uh, nothing, no disrespect to Randy Alcorn, but he just ruined what my vision, my image of heaven was. We began our study of the uh, Ten Commandments in our Bible classes a few weeks back, and there was one thing that stood out to me above all the rest, uh, and that is that Exodus doesn't start with chapter 20, okay? Now, you can probably figure that out. There are 19 chapters before that, and it's not so much the fact that there are 19 chapters before, but it's what takes place in those 19 chapters before we get to the 20th chapter of Exodus. It tells us the story of Israel's salvation by grace, that God fulfilling his covenant promise by bringing the people out of Egypt. When God gave the 10 words, as they're sometimes referred to, he was addressing a group of people that he had redeemed. A group of people that he already had a covenant with. A group of people that had already agreed, if you go back to chapter 19, verse 8, to submit to his authority and sovereignty. When he gave the law, he was giving his redeemed people a set of guidelines to teach, teach them how to live for his glory, and in doing so, they would honor him. When the children asked their parents why they had to keep the law, their parents didn't say to them, because God said so, or because God gave it to us, but they would relate to them the story of the Exodus, the story of their salvation. First, the gospel then the law. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning of verse 20. In the future, when your child asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God commanded you? Tell them, 
We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us and give us this land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as it is the case today. 400 years plus hadn't been very kind to Israel as they were in Egypt. Many had forgotten what it was like to worship the true God. Many had been prevented from worshiping God the way that God wanted to be worshiped. So it was very important for God to remind or re-educate, if you will, his people to what his expectations were for them. The second commandment has a lot of lessons for us today. Hopefully you were in Bible class, you looked at a lot of those, but there's two in particular that I want to focus on this morning for the next few minutes. And the first one is that God doesn't want to be limited. Okay, God does not want to be limited. The Hebrews came out of a polyistic culture. The Egyptians had at least 25 gods, probably more. Uh, I did a little research, and I'm going to share with you just a little bit some of these, some of these gods. And something that's kind of interesting, sort of off the topic, but I've, I've had an opportunity in later years to look at different cultures, and it's amazing to me how their creation story is very similar to the Bible's creation story. Don't know what that means, but it's just interesting that there's that parallel there. But Adam... A-T-U-M, was considered to be the first god, having created himself. Early myths state that Atom created Shu, Shu was the god of the air, and Tefnut, Tefnut was the goddess of moisture, by spitting them out of his mouth. Shu and Tefnut were the parents of Nut, the goddess of the sky, and Jeb, who was a fertility god. The people believed that Nut swallowed Ra, the sun god, every night and gave birth to him the next morning. And Nut and Jeb were the parents of Osiris, Isis, Seth, and Nephitis. Osiris was originally the god of agriculture, but later became Israel's first mythological king. He married his sister Isis, goddess of funeral rites and resurrection. His brother Seth, Seth, who was the god of darkness and evil, was jealous of him and killed him in order to take away the throne. But Isis brought him back to life. Isis and Osiris gave birth to Horus. Horus would eventually rise up against Seth to defeat him and take over the throne. Okay, that's just a little bit. But when you hear that, what does it make you think of? Kind of a modern day soap opera. It's like they're all pitted against each other. Because in in polytheism... A god is nothing more and nothing less than a powerful force in the invisible realm of reality that potentially affects the outcome of human affairs. It is not invincible. It can be defeated or nullified by the purposes of other gods, and it can even be outmaneuvered by human ingenuity. Furthermore, it is a part of the cosmos, not above it. It's a system that limits a god to a specific action and role. The Hebrew word for idol is the word pasel, 
Pesel can also be translated image. In other words, an image is a visible representation of the God. In the case of the Hebrews, the temptation, I don't think, was so much to create a rival God to distract from Yahweh, but an attempt to locate and domesticate Yahweh in a visible, controlled object. Listen to what Moses said in Hebrews, uh, said to the Hebrews in Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning verse 14. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws that you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. In other words, don't be like the Egyptians and all of the other cultures around you and try to make a representation of me because it will no, long, no longer be me that you worship, but the object. And maybe this is why God chose not to reveal himself in visible form, but only in audible form. I found a, uh, a, a quote by Jack Crabtree. Jack is a professor of uh, religion at Gutenberg College in Eugene, Oregon. And it's a little lengthy, but I want to read it because I think it really depicts uh, what, uh, what I'm trying to say. It says, do not, be con- do not conceive of me like the rest of the nations conceive of their supreme God, the most powerful of all the invisible forces to be reckoned with, yet finite, limited, and just one of many influences in their lives. Their God can be aptly represented by just one aspect of the visible order because his nature is so limited and finite. Do not think of me in such a way. I am not limited and finite. I am not one of many influences in your life. I am the one and only influence. When seen in the light of my all-controlling will, nothing else is a cause at all. There is nothing I cannot do. Nothing can thwart me in my purpose. No other forces in reality exist that are even relevant compared to me. I determine everything, control everything, create everything, and cause everything. And furthermore, nothing in the visible realm can adequately capture who I am and what I am like. In one sense, every visible thing reflects my nature and wisdom, for all of it is my handiwork. But in another sense, nothing in the visible realm is like me. Nothing can adequately adequately represent who I am. I am too big to be understood in terms of any finite thing in the natural order. Do not, therefore, conceive of me as a God who can be represented in terms of one finite image. If you do so, then it will not be me, Yahweh, you worship, It will be some other God of your own imagination. 
I am a jealous God. I, Yahweh, the all-powerful, transcendent God, am the one you must worship. You must not worship the shrunken deity of your imagination. So creating an image, whether mental or physical, is putting God in a box. It distorts his free character. It, excuse me, it debases him and it fixes him at a point in time. To say or think, and you've all heard some of these statements, my God would never condemn anyone to hell. Or how could a loving God allow such and such or what not to happen? All of these these kind of statements contradict God's integrity and limit his sovereignty. Think of pictures or sculptures that you've seen that depict God. There are some beautiful renditions of what the artist had in mind, but that's just it. It's a rendition of someone's imagination, a single aspect fixed in time. You know, there are two images that kind of stand out for me uh, when I think of Jesus a lot of times. One of those is the old flannel graph Jesus. You know, he kind of stand here like this, has that sort of solemn look on his face with his hands out, compassionate, um, poor, pitiful people kind of thing. It's a beautiful picture. There's another one that stands out too for me. It's from the Gospel according to Matthew. It was a movie that was made several years ago. The actor in that movie is Bruce Marciano. And he is uh, a very excited. Uh, he's always laughing. He's always uh, got this positive uh, note and tone about himself. And again, a beautiful rendition of who Jesus is and who Jesus may be. While they're both accurate They limit him to a specific point in time, to a specific emotion, a specific look, or a specific behavior. The psalm that we read at the very beginning of service took on a whole new meaning for me a couple of years ago after watching one of Ray Vanderland's faith lessons. Uh, The the, the lesson itself, they were in Thebes. Thebes was an ancient city of, of Egypt. There were four temples in that particular city, and, and Ray was taking his group around and talking about different things about these temples. But these temples were huge. They were probably 90 to 100 feet tall. They had doors in them that were equally as tall uh, and, you know, very wide. And what, what he was saying, what Ray was saying is, is that the, uh, they were made that big because there had to be plenty of room for their big gods to be able to enter and exit that temple as they pleased. So when the psalmist says, lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, he's referring to the header that sits across the top of the door. He's saying, lift them up because my God is so big that he can't even stoop that low. He can't crawl through that gate. You think your God is big, mine is much bigger. So remove the header that the king of glory may come in. We must be careful not to let physical things cloud our understanding and worship of the creator God. The second thing is this, that God expects more from us than being bowed down to and worshiped. Or God doesn't just want us to bow down to him and worship him. Idolatry is described by the do ut des principle. That's Latin. means I give so that you may give. I give you, God, my vows, my offerings, so that you, God, 
will give me fortune and protection against misfortune. Idolatry puts me in control. The relationship doesn't start with God reaching down to me, but it starts with me reaching out to the God. Why do we make idols? Well, for one, it's to bow down and worship them. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel chapter 3, made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned all the people and the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations of every, of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, Zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Why else do we make idols? Well, to serve them, to take care of them, to clean them, to polish them, to burn incense and offer sacrifices to please them. An idol gives me a purpose, but it's my choice, not the idol's. While I don't deny that God wants to be honored and glorified by our worship to Him, I think God can take care of Himself. He doesn't need us to take care of Him, to clean Him, to polish Him, to burn incense or to offer sacrifices to Him. David said that in Psalm 51, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it to you. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. What does He want from us? What does he want us to do? I came across an interesting comparison as I was looking, putting this together. If you go back to Exodus chapter 19, verses uh, 4 through 6, the scripture reads, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations... You will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So it sounds like, and I would concur, that Exodus 19.5, obey me fully and keep my covenant, sounds a whole lot like Exodus 26, which says, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. If you love me and obey me, God says, I will make you a kingdom of priests and I will bless you forever. And what do priests do? Well, priests serve God, but they also serve others. Idolaters and pagan priests only serve the God that they bow down to and nothing more. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare his praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And then you remember the story of the Good Samaritan. On an occasion, an expert in the law stood up to Jesus to test him and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he tells him the story of the um, the Samaritan. And he said, Which one was his neighbor? 
And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Love me and keep my commandments are two sides of the same coin. Jesus said that to love the Father encompassed way more than just worshiping him. It was to do what he was doing, and that was to serve others. The image of God, Jesus Christ, dwelt among us. He made the Father known to us. Not what the Father looks like, in essence, but who the Father is and what the Father does. He came to show us what God has wanted us to do all along. Micah 6, eight. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. James one twenty seven. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And then Romans 12.1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, This is your true and proper worship. What does it look like? It looks like giving up self so that others might be blessed. It's laying down my life for the sake of someone else's. It's what God does, not what God looks like. God touches hurting people. He feeds the hungry. He walks alongside and encourages. He cries with those who cry and he laughs with those who laugh. He blesses. And on and on and on the list could go. And he asked the same of us. Because we are his image to others. God's actions are many, not just one. An image image can only depict one, not many. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you want an image of God? Hopefully, it's what you do every day when you encounter others. Like we always do at this time, we're going to stand, we're going to sing a song. There are going to be members from our leadership team that are going to be around the perimeters of this building. They're there for you. They're there to to help you, to pray with you, to do whatever it is that you need. So if you do have a need, please make that need known as we stand and as we sing. Let the poor say, I am rich. The blind say, I can see. It's what the Lord has done in me. Hosanna, Hosanna. Love that was slain. Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus died and rose again to the river I will wade, there my sins are.